one of the most challenging books, I think, to um, understand is the book of Daniel. And how many of you read the book of Daniel in preparation for this week? Nice. Very nice. Um, question I have for you is, what is the most desired piece of real estate in the whole world? Is it in France? Because everybody thinks, oh, Paris, France, I'd love to go there someday. Is it in Italy? Is it in Australia? How many of you love to go to Australia at some point in life? Nobody? Oh, man, I want to go to the land down under. <laughs> Put some shrimps on the Barbie. Maybe it's Fiji. Does that sound more appealing? You want to go to Fiji? That sounds a little better. Well, none of those places has the most desired piece of real estate. It actually is in Israel, and it is Jerusalem. And the reason why Jerusalem is the most sought-after piece of real estate is because the three major religions, right? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all claim its significance. They all want that land, right? They all want Jerusalem. Um, go back to 1000 BC, King David. He conquered Jerusalem, made it the capital of the Jewish kingdom. And it was in their... Um, it was in their portfolio, if you will, uh, for 400 years. The Israelites, the Jewish people, had that um, as their, their center of, of their, their capital of the Jewish kingdom. And it was in 605 B.C. that Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, came in and overtook them and no longer destroyed everything, took all of the, the vessels out of the, the holy sanctuary. I was trying to explain... Um, to my kids that, you know, if, you, if I had a special cup that we use for communion, right? I, I don't have one, but, you know, if I had a special chalice and, and everybody, you know, that was the one special, that was kind of, they had lots of those that they used in the sanctuary. And King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian, um, they overtook it and it was wiped out. And not only did they take the vessels, they also took the people, some of the brightest and best people. And of the great people that lived in Israel, in, in uh, Jerusalem, they took four guys, four young men, that if you read Daniel, you know who I'm talking about, right? I'm going to read to you in Daniel 1.6. The four men they took were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And by the way, they were from the tribe of Judah. Where was King David from? The tribe of Judah. Where does the Messiah come from? The tribe of Judah, that's right. Verse 7. When they got to, um, this, uh, to, the, to the Babylonian Empire, when they got there, basically um, they were tried, in essence, to erase everything about them and retrain them for the course of three years to become like Babylonians. They gave them new names. To Daniel, he was called Belteshazzar, and Hananiah was called Shadrach, and Mishael was called Meshach. He kind of got the good side. His name barely changed, right? And Azariah was Abednego. Now, here's a question I have for you. When I thought about this, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the people that um, are living this out, and I thought to myself, what is it like to start over? Have you ever gone to a new city, moved, and had to start all over? Have you ever had to do that before? Like, you got to find new friends, you got to maybe get a new job, you got to uh, find a new dentist, a doctor, a new place to go shopping, right? you got all these new things. How many times have you ever had to do that? In my life, I've had to do that ten times. Our family moved a lot, and I moved 
um, throughout college and after college quite a bit. And I know what it's like to have to move around. But I don't know what it's like to be a prisoner of war in a brand new place and having to adjust. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we kind of refer to them, which is sort of weird because we're calling Daniel by his actual name, uh, and then we're calling the other three by their new name. So uh, that's just kind of how I guess maybe the stories go as we've told those stories to our children over the years, um, as we'll get into those stories today. But here's the thing. These four boys had problems. And so the question, the title I have for you this morning is, what's your problem? And I know when you hear that, you see the title screen come up, you'll hear that, you're like, well, wait a minute. Is he saying like that to me in a mean way? You know, because tone is everything, right? What's your problem? Right? That's how we talk to people sometimes, like if they, you know, are acting strange. What's your problem? That's not what I'm saying today, okay? I'm saying... What's your real problem going on in your life? Because if you have one, which we all do, probably got multiple ones, right? What do we do with those problems? Well, Daniel teaches us what to do with our problems. And this is what I'd like you to remember. Make your problem his problem. Because for him, it's not a problem at all. Right? Make your problem his problem. Because for him, it's not a problem at all. That's what you're going to hear me say a lot today. And I'm going to talk to you about four problems that they had and maybe somewhat equate to problems that you had. Are you ready? I need a little more enthusiasm because... Thank you, thank you. I I know it's nice outside, all right? And I know you came in outside and you're like, oh man, I would rather be walking outside enjoying myself. Well, you'll get there. The whole week I looked at, okay? Monday through Saturday, beautiful weather all week, sunny. So today you're in the house of the Lord and it's a good place to be. Right? All right. So here's the first problem. Bacon. Bacon's the first problem. All right? Not just bacon, but ham sandwiches and pulled pork and uh, baby back ribs. Is your mouth watering yet? Yeah, the pig is the problem here. Okay? Because when they got there, they were given food to eat that the king ate. And they should have been really happy that they were getting this deli- these delicacies, Right? this great food to eat, but it's not kosher for them to eat from the pig. And so they have a problem, right? Verse 5, the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that he ate, and he gave them wine to drink. Now, before the saying was, when in Rome, the saying was, when in Babylon, all right? Because the Babylonian Empire came long before the Roman one did. So, when in Babylon, you do as the Babylonians do. And they should have probably just gone along with it, right? I mean, surely God would understand they're prisoners of war here, and they should just go ahead and eat the bacon and the eggs and all of that other good stuff, right? But they decide to maybe not do that. Surely God would understand if your boss takes you out for many drinks or if your boss comes to you and says, hey, what's the gossip? Spill the tea. I want to know what's happening in, you know, around. I mean, what do you do when someone over you wants to get you to do something that you know is not right in the eyes of the Lord? Do you just say, well, I don't really have control. Surely God will understand. When in Babylon... Do as the Babylonians do, or do you do what Daniel did and what these boys did? I love what he says in verse 8. 
It says, but Daniel resolved. I underline it so you know it's important. But Daniel resolved. He purposely decided that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. And he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And what was the result of being bold and asking the chief of the eunuchs to not defile himself? The result was God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And Daniel requested something that you probably went, ugh, because that's what all kids do when they're asked to eat their Brussels sprouts. Ugh, vegetables and water is what the scripture says that he ate. That's what he requested, vegetables and water. Now, I think there's a little bit more to it. I think that he probably requested food that was not processed. Right? And all my research that I've come to, and I've done a lot of research on this, if you want to be healthy, then you should try to eat foods that are not processed. Raw foods, whole foods, organic, right? clean, fresh. Those are the words that we like, I like to hear when you talk about eating food. And it's been working great for me, and I know there's an old saying, right? Let thy food be thy medicine, right? The food you eat is, has healing powers. So just think about that because it doesn't take long before you start to feel a difference. And in fact, in 10 days, the chief of the eunuchs noticed, wow, Daniel's diet is working out way better than the king's diet. So he did what I'm sure the other people didn't really like, he switched it up on them. He says, okay, you guys don't get the king's food anymore. You get Daniel's food and uh, bon appetit. Eat your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Eat your broccoli. And uh, that's, there you go. Problem solved. So what do you do when you got a problem? Make your problem his problem. Because for him, it's not a problem at all. Right? That's what you got to do. Can you do that? Just a little bit of encouragement here, folks. It uh, goes a long ways. I really appreciate that. All right, problem number two, the king's crazy dreams. The king has some crazy dreams. You read Daniel, you know what I'm talking about, right? He has these weird dreams. And his first dream King Nebuchadnezzar has involves uh, four precious metals, if you will, metals. And um, it's a dream that he has no idea what the interpretation is, and he wants someone to interpret it. So what does he ask for? He summons the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers Come and interpret my dream. And these guys all come, right, into some, you know, big fanfare or whatever. And they all come in, and they're like, okay, king, tell us your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. And he says, uh-uh-uh, that's not how it's going to work this time, boys. You tell me my dream and my interpretation. And they're like, that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that, right? He says, well, I don't care. You're not that wise then. So you're all going to die. And that was the order. Everyone's going to die. All the wise men, all the sorcerers, enchanted, everybody's going to die unless somebody tells me my dream that I had and the interpretation. Now that's interesting, right? So it goes out, Daniel hears about it. What does Daniel do? What do you do when you have a really big problem? Because this is life or death here, right? This is a big, serious problem. Bills are due, you got no money in the bank. Relationship, it's falling apart, right? Life's out of control. We have these kinds of problems in life. What do you do? Make your problem his problem, right? Because for him, it's no problem at all. Make your problem his problem. And Daniel goes 
into his house. Verse 17 of chapter 2. And he makes the matter known, in case they didn't know already, to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, his buddies, his true friends in the faith. And he says to them, verse 18, Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They prayed together. When you're in trouble, when you have a problem, do you call your friends to pray with you? I mean, that's why we exist as a church. Joe shared that this morning. Like the importance of coming together and gathering together. I mean, we we are not called to be alone and walk through this life alone. We are called to to gather our friends together and pray together and and call on the name of the Lord together. That's why we, we come together as a church. That's why God established this church. That's why we exist. It's so important that we're here. I hope you know that. And his friends prayed together. They made their problem his problem. Because for him, it's no problem at all. Verse 19, the mystery of the dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I would too. Thank you, God, all right? We're going we're gonna to be saved. We, I know the vision. I know the dream. I know the interpretation. So Daniel goes to the king. But here's the thing. He doesn't take credit. That's the best part. He doesn't say, oh, king, I know your dream, right? Like all of the prideful um, people we have in the world today that would do that, you know? Oh, it's all, I got it, right? It's all me, right? No, he doesn't take credit. He goes to the king and he says, nobody can do what you're asking, king, but my God, Jehovah, the God, the one true God, he can tell you what your dream is and what it means. And then he lays it out for him. He tells him, you had a dream of an image. And the head of that image was all gold. And the shoulders, arms, and chest were silver. And the bronze part was the midsection. And the legs were iron. But the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And he tells him, that's what you saw. And he says, okay, Daniel, you're spot on. (laughs) Now what's it mean? Well, he tells them that the head of gold is his kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. And it will be the most powerful of them all. But then the silver chest and arms is the next kingdom, which will be less powerful, but it will come. And then the third kingdom, the the Medo-Persian kingdom. I'll lay this all out for you in a little bit here, the answer to this, um, because there's a second dream that comes. But then there's the fourth kingdom that will be divided, and that's the kingdom of the iron and the clay mixed together. The king's amazed. What does the king do in verse 47, chapter 2? The king answers, says, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, because you revealed this mystery to me. What an interesting turn of events here. This ruthless king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, actually believes in God. I mean, put that into perspective today. It'd be like some of the dictators that are in the world today. Imagine them all of a sudden believing in God, believing in our God, right? The God of the God, the Father, the God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Well, what happens in chapter 4 is very interesting um, because it shows 
how much King Nebuchadnezzar really believed about God. If you read that chapter, you might recall that he had a second dream, which I'm not going to go too depth into too much depth here, but he uh, had a dream that he didn't quite understand. Daniel interpreted it for him, and the dream was that basically the king's pride, um, the proverb is, pride comes before the fall, and the king's pride would cause him to basically go insane, lose his mind, and go live in the woods and eat grass like an animal, like an ox, for seven years. And that exactly happens. But then he gets his mind back, regains control of the kingdom, and he ends chapter 4 with this verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, And this part's true. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. (laughs) Right? I mean, he was totally humbled, and so he praises God. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm going to jump to chapter 7 for a moment, because I want to tell you that Daniel has the very same dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Only, it's interesting the difference between the dreams. Because when King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, it was precious metals describing the four kingdoms. One of them, which is his, and three that would unfold. This is prophecy. This is something that didn't happen at that time, but would happen in the future. You need to understand that and know that Daniel is a book of prophecy and practicality. So I jump to chapter 7. I tell you that it's the same dream. The image is different. Daniel instead has a vision from God. This is how God views it. It's four beasts. The beasts are interesting. The the first one is the lion with eagle's wings that are actually plucked off and the lion is standing upright. Bizarre, right? Then there's the bear with three bloody ribs in its mouth because it devours the flesh. Then there is a leopard that has four wings and four heads. And the fourth beast, verse 7 of chapter 7, he says, I saw the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. There's that iron. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts because it had ten horns, which actually represents ten kingdoms. That's prophecy. I considered, verse 8, the horns, and behold, from the horns came up another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in that horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. I mean, this is straight out of Chronicles of Narnia, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting that I'm uh, reading those books, that whole series right now, um, and then here we come in, in Daniel. This is, this is some interesting stuff. But here's what I find to be interesting about it. God gives the vision to Daniel. There's four empires. Three of them will exist eventually. But King Nebuchadnezzar, man, sees the empires as precious metals. But God sees them as beasts. That's what, man think, or that's what God thinks about man in charge. Think about that. We see it as precious metals when we're in charge. But God sees it as beasts because God is in charge. 
As history unfolds, I'll explain it to you, put it into perspective. The gold head and the lion, it's the same thing. It's the Babylonian Empire, which exists at this point in time in Daniel's life. The silver and the bear is the second empire, which also would exist eventually in Daniel's life. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And that lasted until about 330 B.C., when the third empire takes over, led by Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. Now, what's interesting about the Greek Empire is, remember the bronze and the leopard had four heads, right? Because Alexander the Great dies at a very young age. I believe he was 33 when he died. But when he died, his four generals took over. They split up the kingdom into four parts, north, south, east, west. There will be more about that in a little bit. But the four empire, or the four is, is split into four. Then there's the iron mixed with the clay and the ten-horned beast with iron teeth. That's the Roman Empire. That's what existed when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus lived. The little horn, by the way, is the Antichrist yet to come. I'm not going to get too deep into this because some of you are like, woo, <laughs> and others are like leaning up on your chair like, ooh, tell me more, right? So Facebook uh, Live Bible Study Wednesday, 7.30, I'll tell you more, all right? But I don't want to get too far from the theme of Daniel, which is to make your problem his problem because for him, it's not a problem. That's right. So let's jump back to to uh, chapter 3, and let's look at problem number 3. There's a golden statue. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar is very prideful. So what does he do? What do prideful people do? Well, they make a 9-foot-wide statue, 90-foot-tall of gold, and say, worship it. That's me. 9-foot-tall. A cubit, by the way, in Scripture is a foot and a half. Right? So six cubits and six cub- or 60 cubits high. 9 foot wide, 90 foot tall, and the people are instructed that when you hear the BSO play, the BSO is the Babylonian Symphony Orchestra, when you hear it play, you must bow down. Verse 4, chapter 3, the herald proclaims, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, this is the BSO, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down, worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now David, is, or Daniel, is not mentioned here. He must have been out of town. All right? I don't know where he is, but he's not mentioned here in this, this chapter. But his three buddies are, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have a problem. Now what would you do, right? I mean, you're told this new thing, right? You could kind of go with the flow, Right? God would understand. You're not really bowing down to this gold. I mean, you could, you could bow down like everybody else, but you could be praying, God, I know you're the true, one true God. Right? You could go with the flow. You don't want to make waves. Right? You don't want to bring too much attention to yourself. You know? Remember, you're a prisoner of war. You're, you're supposed to be following along, conforming to the pattern of this community, this empire. But what does Scripture teach you? Romans 12.2 tells you don't conform to the pattern of the world. Don't try to fit into this world. 1 Peter 1.16 tells you to be holy because I am holy. That means set apart yourself. Don't do that. 
The king finds out that these three boys will not conform. They will not bow down. He gives them one more chance. He says, if you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into the hot, fiery furnace. And then he even kind of uh, sticks it to them and says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See the pride in this man? Nobody's going to rescue you. Your God's not going to rescue you. But listen to their response. This is their response in verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Well, you know that ticked them off, right? But then they say in verse 18, in verse 18 they say, but if not, so in other words, if we die in this furnace, if we become martyrs, be it known to you, O king, that doesn't matter to us. We will not serve your gods, worship the golden image you have set up. Now the king's really mad. And he makes the fiery furnace seven times hotter than usual. It's so hot that the people holding the three boys that have tied them up, they die because it's so hot. And they throw them in the furnace. And what happens? You've heard this story before, right? What happens? The, the, the king's eyes are, are he's, he's going, what? What? Wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? And he says in verse 25, Behold, I see four men, unbound, untied. And they're dancing. I know the scripture says walking, but they're dancing in the midst of that fire, right? They're not hurt. But then he says, And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And this will blow your mind, but I believe that fourth one, that's Jesus. Before he was even Jesus. The pre-incarnate Christ. They came out of that furnace. Yesterday, Jamie and I sat next door with our neighbors with a bonfire, right? We came home, our clothes reeked with smoke. These guys came out of that. They didn't smell like smoke at all. They didn't even have a hair on their head singed. I don't have that many left to singe, but, you know. Amazing. But this is what happens when you make your problem his problem. Because for him, it's... Not a problem. That's right. Now, chapter 5, I'm going to try to skim through this so we touch um, based on all the chapters, but in chapter 5 of Daniel, it's the writing on the wall. How many of you heard that expression before? The writing's on the wall, right? This is where it comes from. This is fun when this stuff happens, I think, right? You have an expression that you've been using your whole life, you didn't know where it came from? Wow, it came from the Bible. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in the Bible, right, in God's Word. Now, I also think the Adams family got their inspiration from chapter 5. Because if you ever saw the Adams family, then you know that there was a character on there named The Thing. Right? Thing was just a hand. Right? If you ever saw the Adams family, it was just a hand. And in, Sha- in uh, Daniel chapter 5, there's just a hand that shows up at a party and writes on the wall. Right? Meeny, meeny, Tekla Parson, I think it is. And basically it's saying to that king, I think it was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, that your days are numbered. In fact, that was the last day of the Babylonian Empire because on that day, the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And they are out. And so now, there's a new king, King Darius. 
And we move on to chapter 6. King Darius was very fond of Daniel. Very fond of Daniel. Um, Daniel had a, um, a habit of praying three times a day. He would go home, open up his doors, pray towards Jerusalem, probably morning, noon, and night. And that was his, um, that would eventually become a problem for him because um, Darius was in charge. And by the way, Darius was about 62 years old. Well, it says he was 62, but um, I estimate Daniel then would have been around in his 80s. So if you ever read that story to your kids about Daniel and the lion's den, and you see Daniel as this young strapping lad, that's a little incorrect, okay? Because he's an older man now, right? He's in his 80s probably. And the story goes that Darius puts in charge of the kingdom that he's in charge of there, 120 satraps, which are basically leaders, and in charge of those 120 are three, and of those three, one is Daniel, and he is the best of the three. So naturally, when you're a very good, effective leader, you have people who will be jealous of you, and they are jealous of Daniel. So they try to find a way to get rid of him, but this guy is squeaky clean, right? He's a man of faith. He's a godly man. And they can't find a way to get rid of him. So they attack his religion. They attack his faith. Something's never changed, right? And, and so what they do is they, they come up with this idea. They can't find any dirt on Daniel, so they say, well, let's have Darius make a rule, a law, that if anyone prays, because they know Daniel's habit of prayer, if anyone prays to anyone but Darius, he shall be done with. So it goes into law. Darius has no idea what they're planning. It goes into law. They bring Daniel forward. Daniel, well, actually, I, before, I, before they bring Daniel forward, um, I read to you uh, from Daniel 6, verse 10, so you can see how Daniel responds. Um, by the way, what do you do when people tell you you can't pray? When they tell you you can't pray in school? When they tell you you can't read your Bible? What do, they, what do you do? Well, Daniel knew the document had been signed. Did it stop him? No. He went to his house. He goes to the windows, to his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees three times a day, and he prays. He gives thanks before his God, just as he had done in the past. And because he prayed, they put him in the lion's den. Now, you've got to understand, Darius likes Daniel. He tries everything to save Daniel, to probably have, you know, People picketing and all kinds of stuff, you know. I won't go there. <laughs> but he couldn't sleep the night that Daniel was in the lion's den. And what's interesting is, he's not in the lion's den and he can't sleep, but Daniel's in the lion's den and he probably slept like a baby. Probably put his head right up on that lion's belly and just slept like a baby because God took care of him, Right? When you know God is in control, boy, you sleep really, really well. When you take your problem, make it his problem, because for him, it's not a problem, right? Daniel 6.22, Darius comes in the next morning, doesn't eat, right? He's just sick, like, oh, please let Daniel be okay. Daniel, are you okay? Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? And he says, my God sent his angel, angel means messenger, shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me. 
because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And uh, by the way, just so you know that there was nothing wrong with the lions, King Darius took the conspirators, threw them in the lions Then after Daniel was removed, and those lions had a really good feast. Okay? So the lions, there was nothing wrong with them. God is in control. Make your problem his problem. For him, it's not a problem. Chapter 8. Okay, I'm going to kind of, this is all prophecy stuff now. Chapter 8 is the vision of the ram and the goat. The ram has two horns, the goat has four. The ram's the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat's the Greek Empire, right? The two and the four. The Greek Empire um, overtakes them. Now, chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. But a week is really seven years. So when you understand that, there's some really fascinating how it times out until all the way to the point of Jesus being crucified. But there is one week that remains, one seven-year period that remains, and we call that the tribulation, right? That's coming. We read about that in Revelation. Jesus acknowledges Daniel's prophecy. In Matthew 24, 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that, by the way, that's who mentioned it, Daniel. The abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus totally credits Daniel, understands that Daniel was speaking prophecy. In chapter 10, you see spiritual warfare. If you're going through spiritual warfare, or maybe you don't think spiritual warfare is real, read chapter 10. Daniel fasts for three weeks. He wants an answer from God. Why does he have to fast for three weeks? Because that's how long it takes for the messenger to get to him. The angel was sent immediately, but the prince of Persia, a demon, was basically holding back the angel. And who had to come to his rescue? But Michael, the archangel. And then he was released and he was able to get the message to Daniel. If you're praying for a breakthrough, don't stop praying. Spiritual warfare is real. You don't know what's happening. You just keep praying. Chapter 11, the battle of the north and the south within the Greek empire. This is very interesting stuff. In fact, the battle of the north and the south, north being Syria, okay, the Seleucid dynasty, and Antiochus was the uh, name of the king, and uh, one of them in particular is very well known, Antiochus Epiphanes, which actually means God. He was manifesting himself as God. He was the most well-known one. They were in this constant battle with the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, and guess who was stuck in the middle? Israel, right. They've been stuck in the middle. So there was this constant battle going on, but chapter 11 is so amazingly spot on with details that happened that the critics couldn't explain it other than to say, well, Daniel must not have been written in the 500 B.C. It must have been written after all of this happened. But do you know what silenced the critics? It didn't happen too long ago. The Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found Daniel, the book of Daniel, as inspired scripture along with the other Old Testament books, which totally silenced the critics in that respect. Fascinating stuff, prophecy, isn't it? Now, chapter 12, the end is near. Many claim the world is getting better. People are getting better. But also, many claim the world is getting worse. What do you think? Let's, take a, let's, take a, let's just take a little quick poll, just keep you alert here. How many of you think, raise your hand, if the world's getting better? People are getting better. Not one hand up. <laughs> All right. How many of you think the world's getting worse? All right, well, you're both right, okay? 
the, the truth is, all right, the good are getting gooder and the bad are getting badder. All right, here's why I say that. Okay, Daniel 12:10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So both is happening at the same time. Here's how I want to end this. How do you respond to this book? How do you worship God, which is your response to God? How do you do that in this? It's prophetic. How do you respond to God prophetically here when you read this stuff? You can ignore it, which a lot of people do. To be honest with you, I haven't done an exhaustive study in, in prophecy, and I know many, many have, and they enjoy that. Um, but how do you respond to that? What I see, what I'd like you to see this morning, and to respond to God in this, is that when you read this book, when you see this prophecy, you need to recognize and understand that God is in control of everything that's happening. He's been in control from the very beginning. And he will be in control all the way through the end, through eternity. He's working everything out according to his purpose. Even though the evil one and his demons are working overtime to try to mess up God's plan, they can't do it. It's impossible. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is handling everything. In Daniel, you should see this big picture of life. No matter what happens, God is in control. No matter what virus comes next, no matter what pandemic happens, God is totally in control. That's how you should understand the prophecy and how you can respond to it. You don't know what's going to happen next. It might be World War III next. But you know what? That doesn't matter. That doesn't change that God is in control. And he will work everything out according to his purpose. You can't stop that. You can't stop it. Practically, I hope you see and respond that, understand, God is a problem solver. Right? You have a problem. There's something going on in your life. You need a solution. You need to turn it over to God. Right? You need to make your problem his problem. Because for him, it's not a problem. And I hope you see that. I hope that sticks in your mind. If a couple weeks from now, you're like, what was that really fun saying that pastor was? Just email me. I'll tell you. Just text me. I'll tell you what it is again. But right now, what I want you to do is, I want you to respond to God through prayer. I'd like you to pray as our team comes up to play our last song. And I'd like you just to pray and ask God to deal with your problem. You know what your problem is. It's different than mine. We all have our problems. As the title is, what's your problem? But as you go to God in prayer and as you talk to him and just say, God, this is my problem. Maybe it's been your problem for a long time. Just let it be known. Just lay it out there to God and say, God, I want to make my problem your problem. Because for you, it's not a problem. Would you please stand?
Thank you.